0: 35, this is God's word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah Go to the house of the Rechabites, and speak with them, and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers. Then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they answered, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, You shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard. Or field or seed. But we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah, And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab the son of Rechab gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently. Saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. Read that far in God's Word. If you went tent camping, no RVs, no fancy stuff, tent camping, how long would you stay out? The longest that you would ever stay out there. A week? A month? Today we study a family who has been tent camping for 250 years. Tent camping. As a symbolic action like a parable, God told Jeremiah to gather this extended actual family of shepherds with no land, people who were always camping in tents. We're not told much about this family, the Rechabites, before they're summoned into our story. All we know is that these people have been commanded by their founder to not live in houses, to not plant farm fields, to not drink wine. And God told Jeremiah to offer them wine, knowing that they would decline. The point of the parable is that this camping clan was more obedient to the command of their 250-year dead ancestor than the people of Jerusalem were obedient to the commands of the living God today. God was emphasizing, you see, the disobedience of the sin of his people as the basis for his punishment coming of the exile and the destruction of their city, Jerusalem. Last time we studied chapter 34 about the sin of unreliability. Today we study chapter 35 about the good character trait of reliability. The Same topic from a different angle. 34 was about promise breakers, if you will. 35 is about promise keepers. So that brings us to our main point on your handout, which is, in order for God to bless his people in a new covenant, two things would be required. A, someone to obey God by keeping his promises or his vow, and B, some way to cover his people's disobedience. So we'll cover three things. God ordered a test for this reliable clan, verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 11, we'll see how the clan passed that test and continued to obey their forefather. And thirdly, from verses 12 to the end of the chapter, we'll see how God compared the clan's obedience to his people's disobedience. So first, God ordered this test, the reliability clan, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 shows us jumping back in time to an earlier point of the reign of King Jehoiakim. At this time, Jeremiah is not in prison yet so that Jeremiah can go to the temple to do what God asks him to do here. The army of Babylon was attacking And so this family of campers, the Rechabites, left their tents out in that wide open area and entered the walled city of Jerusalem for safety. That's what verse 1 brings us up to speed. So verse 2, God commanded Jeremiah to gather that tent camping family publicly in the temple it's called here the house of the Lord, verse 2, and into one of the chambers, which were simply meeting rooms, much like we have meeting rooms in our church buildings today. And God was providing an example of covenant-keeping to shame his people who were covenant-breaking. Verses 3 and 4, Jeremiah did exactly what God asked by gathering that family. And don't be confused in verse 3 when a different man, also named Jeremiah, is mentioned. It's simply a different man. Man, there's other people named Benjamin, for example. This is a different man named Jeremiah in verse three. Verse five, our prophet Jeremiah put pictures of wine and cups in front of this Rechabite clan and invited them to drink wine. Remember, this is God's instructions, not Jeremiah's idea. So that was point one. God ordered a reliability test for the clan. Point two, the clan passed the test and continued to obey their father. Verse 6, the clan of the Rechabites refused to drink the wine because of the command of their ancestor, who ordered the family never to drink wine. Verse 7, the other commands had been given to this eccentric family, such as not building houses, instead living in tents, not sowing seed, which means not having farms or gardens of their own as a source of food. Instead, the family was called to perpetually wander, and depend on the food that they would find on their journey. That way, verses 6 and 7 read, it sounds like someone reciting a catechism. It sounds like a motto that they had memorized and said to each other many times over these last two centuries. Brief commands that they were under and still keeping for centuries. Wandering people, we might call them Bedouins today, with their flocks for food. It reminds us a bit of a season in the life of God's people and the wandering in the wilderness. But it's clear that the commands were given by the family founder in order to warn against blending into the values of the society, kind of like ancient Abraham was commanded to do. It reminds us today of, for example, the Amish people who do not mix the soci- with society by abstaining from using modern appliances and conveniences. For the Rechabites... Their identity as a group surrounded, not tents, it surrounded the core value of not accommodating to the culture around them into settled homes and towns. They had a, we could put it this way, hang with me, an alternative lifestyle, but not a wicked one. An alternative lifestyle that was simple and good. We're meant to regard this in the most positive of light. However, please don't get stuck here. Please don't get distracted by the issue of wine or houses. This passage, on the whole, the whole chapter does not debate whether it's right or wrong to drink wine, whether it's right or wrong to own a house or live in a house, whether it's right or wrong to plant crops. What counts in this chapter, what is significant, the only thing that's significant in this chapter is that this special family obeyed a command with zeal and consistency over a period of time of 200 years plus. I tried to help you to keep focused by the title of the sermon being The Trait of Reliability. That is the focus. Listen to how the Rechabites describe themselves, for example, in verse 8. We have obeyed the voice of John the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, our daughters, and so on. The family themselves report to Jeremiah, and therefore to us, that every person in the family obeyed. Verse 9, they obeyed not by not building houses, instead living in tents and keep on moving wherever God led them. They didn't plant fields or vineyards. Verse 10, their family had lived in tents since their founding. Their only exception was recently. Here in verse 11 we read that when the evil king Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came over to attack Jerusalem, They were in the way, and they were camping out there, and so they decided to run into Jerusalem for safety until the danger passed. As soon as the danger passed, they're right back into their tents. So that's where we stand. The Rechabite family were quintessentially a community of listeners, covenant keepers. The main command of God to his people, if you remember from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, even today the Jewish people call it the Shema. It's a Hebrew word which means hear. And that's the first word as we read it in English. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Doesn't that sound familiar? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. That phrase takes on the name Shema from the first word in the sentence in the original language, Hebrew, Shema, to hear. In verse 8 of our passage now, Jeremiah 35, verse 8, the Rechabites said about themselves, We have Shema. Shema. We have heard in a covenantal, deep, committed sort of way. We have listened, we have heeded, we have obeyed. We have put ourselves under the command of our forefather. Again in verse 10, we have lived in tents and we have shema. We have listened, we have obeyed. All that was commanded us. Did the Rechabites hear or listen or obey? Yes. Now do you start to see God's point? Did God's people hear or listen or obey? Uh, that brings us to our third point. God compared. God, this is not Jeremiah, this is God comparing the clan's obedience with his people's disobedience. While the Rechabites were a quintessentially community, a community of listeners, the Israelites had become quintessentially a community of those who would not listen, would not heed, would not obey. Verse 12, the word of the Lord Again, not generated by Jeremiah. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 13, the audience for God's lesson now is God's own people. The Rechabites have been presented, but the message is for God's people. That was just an illustration. Leave the Rechabites behind. We're talking to God's people. God asks his people in an accusatory manner in verse 13, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words? This was an expression of God's anger. God's indignation, could you not accept the nurturing that would meld you into the true identity of this community of covenant keepers? Verses 14 and 15 are very interesting. If you allow me for a moment to geek out on the Hebrew word here, that you can see it in English. Verse 14 and verse 15, the whole ministry of all of God's prophets through the years are sandwiched between two occurrences of our word shema. If you look at the very end of verse 14 for the phrase listen to me and again at the very end of verse 15 listen to me you'll see it. The both those are the Hebrew word shema which is listen here obey. The people would not listen, then God sent prophet after prophet. He's now summarizing the entire ministry of all of the prophets that God has sent. Nothing has changed. The condition of God's people at the end of the entire corpus of the ministry of all of the prophets was the same condition, summarized by saying, still not listening. From Shema to Shema, not listening. Listening was required for staying in the land. And so a potential loss of land means the punishment of the exile is in view. Land keeping is only possible through covenant keeping which is listening and obeying the Shema. Verse 16, the contrast with God's people, the covenant breakers, is painted clearly with the covenant keepers, the Rechabite clan. Verse 17, the first instance of two instances of the word therefore introduces two verdicts. The verdict for Israel, disaster ordered by God. But because in verse 18, the Rechabites were obedient to the commands that they received, Then in verse 19, the second instance of the word therefore introduces the other verdict, this one to the Rechabite clan. They get a different result. God said to the clan of the Rechabites in verse 19, you shall never lack a man to stand before me. I wish I could express how shocking this would be for the original hearers to to read that. The royal language of God's huge promise to the clan of David to never lack a man on the throne, or to the priest descending from Levi to never lack a man to serve in God's presence, is now language borrowed almost promiscuously to give to the Rechabite clan for God to say to them, you never lack a man to stand before me. It's a subtle announcement about the end of the dynasty of David and the death of the king, and the loss of land, and the exile. It's so shocking, I have to try to illustrate, and excuse me if this doesn't do the job. Let's say this week, the mayor of Milwaukee decides to honor Giannis, their NBA home uh, star, by giving him the keys of the city. And they're in the middle of the ceremony, the press is all there, and he's ready with the symbolic keys of the city, and says, you know what? I'm tired of you, Giannis, and he says, come on up here, Jack, and Jack is a guy who's never missed a day of work for 35 years, being a city bus driver, in Milwaukee, he says, Jack, I'm giving you the keys of the city, this this would be international news that that press conference happened, this is unbelievable, that God is saying to the Rechabites, you will never lack a man to stand before me, what about David, what about Levi, what about God's promises to all of his people? The question that's supposed to occur to us after studying our chapter together is why would God be giving such a strong reward and promise to a clan such as the obscure and eccentric Rechabites? The answer is because God is serious about the trait of reliability. God is serious about obedience. Obedience. The people of God had the sin of unreliability, as we covered in chapter 34. But now, in chapter 35, the people of the Rechabite clan had the character trait of reliability. So these final words that the Rechabites heard, stand before me, is a phrase that's found over a hundred times in the Old Testament. It refers to standing before your supervisor with an attitude of service to him. Uh, the fact that God used this phrase to refer to this wandering shepherd camping clan did not imply that they would assume a priestly role. Rather, it was a promise that this family would not be destroyed. Fast forward 150 years. We read after the exile, when the rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. In Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 14, a descendant from this family, the Rechabites, was faithfully serving the Lord as kind of a contractor, working on rebuilding the doors and setting their bolts. And so God's promise is already fulfilled once in ancient history. But you know as well as I do, this is all pointing farther than that. That promise to the Rechabites is fulfilled again. In the coming of Christ. Who stands before the Lord God? Who stands before Him? Who has that promise fulfilled? It's God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only truly faithful one. Jesus is the reliable one. Rechabites was just an illustration. They're a true historical tribe, but it was really just an illustration of one trait. Jesus alone has that trait truly. He has actually kept the commands given to him by his father. The camping Rechabites were an example that pointed forward to that trait found only in Jesus Christ. They were camping. And Jesus said, Luke 9, 58, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Rechabites were faithful to their founder's commands, but they were sinners in other ways who did not earn God's favor in the new covenant by their obedience. Rather, they point us actually forward to God's plan to fulfill the new covenant with someone else's obedience. The one faithful covenant keeper is Jesus. In all of history, it was only Christ who perfectly kept the new covenant commands. The Apostle Paul explained all of this for us in Romans 5. Going all the way back to the first man, Adam, who was our covenant head, When he sinned, we all humans broke the covenant in Adam as well, including these humans, the Rechabites. But then Christ came, became the second Adam, and became the new covenant head for those who trust in him alone for salvation. So we can read in Romans 5.19, As by the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ's, the many will be made righteous. So it brings us back to our main point in our study today. In order for God to bless his people in a new covenant, two things would be required. A, someone to obey God. B, some way to cover his people's disobedience. So Jesus gave us both. Jesus obeyed God. Holy and fully, all the way through, up and down. He kept every whiff of all of the commands of God in the new covenant. He kept the covenant. There's no hope for us without that. Jesus also covered our disobedience, as you well know. That's the gospel. It's both. We are the promise breakers. Christ is the promise keeper on our behalf. So I have four applications to try to absorb the lesson of this chapter. Number one, repent of your sin of unreliability. You messed up. and You have to admit about yourself that you're not as reliable as you need to be, not as reliable as God says we ought to be. We are unfaithful. We do not always obey God. We're not always people of our word. We don't always follow through. We can pinpoint time after time that we have the sin of unreliability. We're not faithful, obedient campers, if you will. We're the sinners in Jerusalem who deserve God's punishment of exile and destruction. We admit that we are not Reliable. Repent of our sin of unreliability is number one. Number two, trust in Christ alone, the only reliable one. He's not just an example. He is our representative. We need him to be reliable or we're all cooked. Christ Jesus kept the new covenant for us and when we could not keep it, and he's the only covenant keeper, the only truly obedient person The whole Rechabite clan is really just pointing ahead to what he alone possesses. He lived a perfect life and gave us that perfect record for our standing with God. Since God was willing to send his own people into exile to punish them for their sins, what would he do when our sins came to Jesus? Would he exile him? Would he punish him? Would he destroy him? He was destroyed unto death and buried when our sins came upon him. That's how serious God is about our sins, including the sin of unreliability. God's own perfect son had our sins placed upon him. God the Father and God the Son were willing that Jesus would be fully punished for our wrongs. God giving the promise of life to the Rechabites shows the hope of a future for anyone. The pathway of loyalty toward God was for Jesus to submit to the punishment of the cross, much like the pathway of obedience to God in those days in Jerusalem was to submit to the enemy army attacking, to submit to the exile, to submit to what God had planned for them because of their sins. God's judgment on the sin of his people fell for us upon his own son, Jesus Christ. In that way, God alone is worshiped. His covenant blessings are assured. To refuse the reality of the cross of Christ for us is to not listen to God, The same thing he's saying through Jeremiah to the ancient people. You're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. The cross is essential. We can't do this. We have not done this. We trust in Christ, in him alone. He was dead for us. He's alive for us. You've got to listen to me, says our God. To refuse that reality is like for them to refuse the exile, for us to refuse the cross. It's covenant-keeping that was essential through Christ. By faith, we receive the new covenant that God made with us in him. His death is sufficient to cleanse us of our wrongs, and his perfect life is granted to us. Second, let's trust in Christ alone, the only reliable one. And the third application is listen. <laughs> the Shema, right? Listen means obey and heed. Listen to the word of God. Listen to God's spirit when he speaks to your conscience through the Bible. Listen to Jesus Christ as He calls you to believe in His name in the first place and to receive salvation. Listen to your Heavenly Father when He guides you about what He wants you to do now, what He wants you to do with your life, who He wants you to serve, how He wants you to behave. Our lives are given to us by another. Our lives are evaluated by another. Our lives are punished or blessed by another. Our punishment needs to be received by another. Our lives are rescued by another. Commands are given to us by another. Grace is given to us by another. To understand all of this is to be listening to God, having a posture or disposition of saying, lay it on me, Lord. Tell me the real deal. Give me the truth. I want to understand how it actually works. Listening to God is a hunger of heart. It's being loyal to God. It's the trait of Of reliability given to us by Him to be performed then in His grace, being faithful to Him. Listening to the Word of God is our third application, our last and fourth one. In Christ, don't forget my first two words. In Christ, become reliable and let that light shine. Christ gives us grace to become reliable. He gives us grace to keep our vows from here forward. Repentance and faith and then obedience. New obedience. Keep your promises. Do what you said you're going to do. As Christians banded together like a family, a family clan in the church for a lot longer than 200 years, we kind of shine a little bit like the Rechabites to the world, you see? We're like that faithful band who God can point to and say, why don't the rest of you obey me? He can use us to convict the world, but it's not because of our own doing. it's all because of Christ. In Christ, we become reliable. He uses our faithfulness to show the world how things could be. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5:14, "You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So one more thing. Again, we fast forward a few years later in Jerusalem, beyond our story, when God's grace came through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, as we've covered. But we fast forward one more time in Jerusalem. We see a man from another country known as Ethiopia in Jerusalem visiting and in Christ, the intention of God had become a reality. All the nations were now open to inheriting eternal life and faith in Jesus Christ in the early church, and it's spelled out in the book of Acts. Consider how it is presented to us in Acts chapter 8. One of these men visiting is a, a deacon. He's visiting, and he encounters a deacon named Philip. And Philip begins to speak to the man from Ethiopia, and the man had come to Jerusalem in order to worship God. And he had worshipped God, and now he's returning home to another nation, to his home in Ethiopia. And as he's leaving, he's seated in his chariot, literally, that was departing Jerusalem. And the man from Ethiopia is reading the writing of one of God's prophets. He's trying to listen to God. This happened to be the prophet named Isaiah. And that's when Philip approached the chariot, sent by the Spirit of God, and asked, the man from Ethiopia, whether he understood what he was reading. He was reading words like this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And Philip began with that verse, and he began to tell from a lot of verses the good news about Jesus to a man from Ethiopia. The man was converted, the man was baptized, and Philip up and disappeared. It's a fascinating story. I recommend it to you, Acts chapter 8. Philip disappeared in order for God to send him from town to town to town to town to give out that same gospel. Anyone from any town, anyone from any nation could turn to this God to receive the gift of life. That is our fourth application. In Christ, we become reliable, and we faithfully give to missionaries. We send missionaries. We send our sons and daughters as missionaries in order to share this light with all the nation's and this is stated in so many words in Acts 11:18 to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life